see, and this, this, you know, this lead me to say, you know, all of the burning and bombing that was done to us and the houses, nobody never said too much about that, and nothing was done. But let something be burned, you know, by a black man, and then, my God, you know, you see, the flag is, is drenched with our blood. Because, you see, so many of our ancestors was killed because we have never accepted slavery. We had to live on it, but we've never wanted it. So we know that this flag is drenched with our blood. So what the young people are saying now, give us a chance to be young men, respected as a man, as we know this country was built on the black backs of black people across this country. And if we don't have it, you ain't gonna have it either, cause we gonna tear it up. That's what they saying. And people ought to understand that. I, I don't see why they don't understand that. They know what they've done to us. How many brothers do I know on Rockers Island? One, two, three, four, five, yeah! This is Race Capital, with me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time, here in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. Yo, they just did a raid in my neighborhood. Guess they running out of field labor. From 6A, Mikey from 6B, cells right next to each other, so they still neighbors. If you're selling Lucy's or you're smoking, they send you off to college, they got everything you need. Three square meals and a place to bathe. Numbers on the rise, an entire race of slaves. Cops like recruiters trying to increase enrollment. Forget about that wife that you should be getting low with. Forget about them kids that you should be here to raise. Legal aid told you that you could be here for days. Didn't want to tell you that you're probably here for years. Look at all the numbers, you're surrounded by your peers. Dudes from your neighborhood, some you went to school with. Cash you had beef with, others you was cool with. There's so many of us, I mean plenty of us. Cops rolled up, back like 20 of us. Laws and a probable cause. Search and seizure, leave you out of your drawers, yeah. Spread your cheeks, bend over cough. Another false arrest with no remorse. And tomorrow is the same. So, the Richmond Police Department will investigate. They will make more arrests. And you will go to jail. Period. Hard stop. During the midst of the largest pan-African uprising on the planet, those crying out against the violence of the carceral system are under attack. At a time when COVID-19 is spreading rampantly behind America's prisons, with nearly 160,000 staff and incarcerated folks having been reported as infected, 
our democratic mayors are seeking to incarcerate more and more of our community members. Where is the so-called soul of America? How can Black Lives Matter in a prison state? How can Black Lives Matter when the police in this country have yet to stop maiming, have yet to stop beating, killing, surveilling, and arresting Black people in this country? And this movement has established itself as more than a fight for anti-police, as more than a fight for recognition as equals in the eyes of the law, but the fight to dismantle every legal system that serves to oppress Black people in order to empower white supremacy. Our movement has been about challenging the unwelcome relics of settler colonialism that prioritize the needs of the very few off the backs of the masses. The condition of black people in this country is being held in the hands of corporations, and we want that power back. No amount of symbolic pleasantries will pacify our struggle. We don't want no Malcolm X Shabazz Middle School. We don't want a black-owned jail. We don't want black jailers, black judges, or black juries. We want the money. We want abolition. And black people are facing years behind bars for choosing the wrong way to protest our own genocide. At a time when there is still so much justice to be won for African people in this country, the police state is doing what it does best, caging us silencing our narratives, and they're getting away with it. On September 17th, the Richmond Police Department conducted a targeted raid against a black activist who'd been involved in black liberation movement and anti-racist demonstrations that took place during the summer. This was not an isolated event. That same day in Denver, Colorado, six activists were arrested for their involvement in protests demanding justice for Elijah McClain a 23-year-old black man who was murdered by police after being placed in a chokehold and injected with sedatives. On Monday, September 21st, the United States so-called Justice Department labeled New York City, Seattle, and Portland, quote-unquote, anarchist cities and threatened to withdraw federal funding. And just earlier this month, on September 3rd, anti-fascist protester Michael Renwall was shot dead by U.S. Marshals. Our struggle is not over. This week on Race Capital, we discuss oppression and state repression in our movement with our guest, King Salim Kalfani, accompanied by clips featuring the voices of activist Kimberly Jones and scholar and academic Angela Davis. This is WRIR 97.3, Richmond Independent Radio, and you're listening to Race Capital. seeing a lot of things talking of the people making commentary um interestingly enough the ones i've noticed that have been making the commentary are wealthy black people making the commentary about we should not be um 
rioting, we should not be looting, we should not be tearing up our own communities. And then there's been an argument of the other side of we should be hitting them in the pocket. We should be focusing on the blackout days where we don't spend money. Um, but, you know, I feel like we should do both. And I feel like I support both. And I'll tell you why I support both. I support both because there, when you have a civil unrest like this, there are three types of people in the streets. There are the protesters, there are the rioters, and there are the looters. The protesters are there because they actually care about what is happening in the community. They want to raise their voices and they are there strictly to protest. You have the rioters who are angry, who are anarchists, who really just want to and that's what they're going to do regardless. And then you have the looters. And the looters almost exclusively are just there to do that, to loot. Now, people are like, well, what did you gain? Well, what did you get from looting? I think that as long as we're focusing on the what, we're not focusing on the why. And that's my issue with that. As long as we're focusing on what they're doing, we're not focusing on why they're doing. And some people are like, well, those aren't people who are legitimately angry about what's happening. Those are people who just want to get stuff. Okay, well then, Let's go with that. Let's say that's what it is. Let's ask ourselves why in this country in 2020, the financial gap between poor blacks and the rest of the world is at such a distance that people feel like their only hope and only opportunity to get some of the things that we flaunt and flash in front of them all the time is to walk through a broken glass window and get it. That they are so hopeless that getting that necklace, getting that TV, getting that change, getting that bed, getting that phone, whatever it is that they're gonna get is that in that moment when the riots happen and if they present an opportunity of looting that's their only opportunity to get it we need to be questioning that why why are people that poor why are people that broke why are people that that food insecure that clothing insecure that they feel like their only shot that they are shooting their shot by walking through a broken glass window to get what they need. And then people wanna talk about, well, there's plenty of people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got it on their own. Why can't they do that? Let me explain to you something about economics in America. And I'm so glad that as a child, I got an opportunity to spend time at PUSH where they taught me this, is that we must never forget that economics was the reason that black people were brought to this country. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Do you understand that? That's what we came to do. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Now, if I right now, if I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you, and for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money, I didn't allow you to have anything on the board, I didn't allow for you to have anything, and then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly, and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa, that was Rosewood. There are those are places where we built black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property, and they burned them to the ground. So that's 450 years. So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them, and then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game.
They burn your cards. They burn your monopoly money. And then, finally, at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now, at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? But what if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher. So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood, how can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have, that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the do I give about burning the football hall of fame, about burning a target? You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give a You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so your target. Your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Southern trees bear strange fruit brought on the leaves brought at the root black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees pastoral scene of the gallant side the bulging eyes and the, the twisted mouths sad of magnolia so sweet and fresh then the sudden smell
No, this is race and capital. I'm going to talk about race and capital. <laughs> it's important to put some historical context into how activists and organizers are treated and how race plays a, a big part of that. So my name is King Salim Kalfani. Um, I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, by way of Africa. Uh, I attended Virginia Union University. That's how I came to the Confederacy. And uh, I've worked for liberation organizations most of my life, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, um, the uh, Virginia Association to Abolish the Death Penalty, the Richmond Peace Education Center. I worked for the Virginia State Conference NAACP for 23 years. I formed uh, Commonwealth Consultation. Uh, I also worked for the African Awareness Association. And currently, uh, I work with Nexus Services of Virginia. Uh, I'm the public advocacy director, and we deal with all aspects of struggle. Um, as I'm so old, I have such a long work history. I could go on ad infinitum, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, that's kind of like my my curriculum vitae. Well, I like to go back into history. I'm a historian by trade. And the uh, civil rights movement, which started with the uh, assassination of Emmett Till in 1955, uh, it was never about integration. It was about desegregation. It's a big difference. African people never wanted to just go and sit around Europeans because they had the better um, status in society. They didn't want to be held down by the law and be forcibly desegregated. And in fact, the desegregation meant inferior resources, etc. So it was never about this concept of integration. You can never integrate um, enslaved captives with their oppressor. That's impossible. So it was never about integration. And I think that's a mistake many um, make when they do their analysis that that was never on the table. Um, and so what we have is the struggle continues. This has been going on for millenniums. It hasn't, you know, a lot of people think this just started. No, this has been ongoing. Africans have been rebelling. They've been poisoning folks. We ran away from the plantations. We fought. Um, and so this is a continuum. There was no old movement. The struggle has continued. There have been different phases in the struggle. And where we are now is that as people like myself and those I learned from, most of those uh, uh, freedom fighters have transitioned. And so as I become a junior or senior elder, depends on how old or young you may be, the struggle continues. And 
here's the thing, when you do an analysis, young people and students are always the spark of reforms and revolution. It's, it's never been any different. And so it's young people and students role to be the spark. Students alone can't carry through the revolution. You're gonna to have to have the lumping proletariat, those who will never work or never be a part of this society. You're gonna have the working class and you're gonna have uh, the oppressive class. I have to be honest with you. I've taken so many L's and sometimes I've been so arrogant as to think we could gain our liberation in my lifetime. Mm. But as I've gotten older, I could see or felt like, man, because as a as a, I'm 61, as a child and as a young adult, we were on the move. We were making progress because I came out in the time 1959, man, we were damn near enslaved. And so we were making moves. As soon as I became an adult, you know, it's almost like they stunted the movement. They locked everybody up. They assassinated us. COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program of J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, destroyed the movement, our people. We still have political prisoners that have been in prison 30 and 40, 50 years. And so here we had a spark again. The spark was all of these uh, police killings that were on video and people got to see. You had COVID-19, which had people at home with leisure, not leisure time, but spare time to pay attention to the news. And you had almost a perfect storm. And it culminated with the uh, execution of um, George Floyd. And, uh, Europeans in Europe, Europeans here, Africans, Chicanos, Asians, and others got like Fannie Lou Hamer, the great Mississippi freedom fighter, sick and tired of being sick and tired. That execution and watching his executioner look into the camera like he didn't give a damn uh, really was the spark that set people off. and. Uh, you know, it took, it's taken many twists and turns since then, but again, um, the condition of African people, and that's who I'm concerned with. I make no apologies for that. I'm African, we're African people. Africa is the mother of civilization. Our condition hasn't changed. Barack Obama was president for eight years. Our condition worsened. The capitalist system, capitalism, racism, white supremacist system does not work for us. And as long as capitalism stays in place, that it doesn't matter, we can't reform a monster. We can only have a revolution. The people's revolution is the only solution. So we can try to reform this monster as greats like Kwame Ture and Sister Ella Baker from Norfolk used to train us that um, there's no reform in this thing. You can't reform capitalism. You're either gonna have capitalism or socialism, one or the other, and they must be answered 
um, defined by this. Either all the people will own and control the means of production and distribution of wealth or a few people. And now it's about one-tenth of one percent who own and control everything. And they have us fighting over crumbs that fall off of their table. So actually our condition hasn't really changed. We get a spark, we raise hell, we burned down cities in the 1960s after the assassination of Martin Luther King, we burned up almost 320 cities where we had 320 mayors of the largest cities in America. And in those cities, our conditions worsened. Under Barack Obama, our conditions worsened. And you know, the police were killing us and they having beer bashes on international TV. And what did that cop do? who locked up uh, Dr. Henry Skip Gates, who was crying out. He was part of the black bourgeoisie. He was crying out, do you know who I am? And that European cop said, yeah, I know who you are, come on to jail. And uh, so really the conditions have not changed because capitalism hasn't changed. Capitalism is our open enemy. And as long as capitalism stays in place, you can put a law in place that says, okay, no more chokehold. The law enforcement who should be with the people who are underpaid and given too many tasks and not the training or resources to do anything with it should be with us, not their capitalist masters who are billionaires, the billionaire boys and girls club that doesn't give a damn about the people. When we talk about the means or, or the methods of revolution, there's been a lot of debate about the right or wrong way to protest or achieve black liberation. When we march, they shoot us. When we riot, they shoot us. Yes. Well, I've never witnessed uh, Africans liberation. You know, we're pan-Africanists, the total liberation of Africa under scientific socialism. Only when Africa is free will we be free. We need a base, and Africa is the base. It's the richest continent on earth. The sad thing is we don't control, we control barely any of it. Everybody else is in Africa. The Arabs took Northern Africa and made us captive and are selling us at this point. The Europeans during the Berlin Conference in 1884 and 85 divided up Africa into the over 100 nations you see today. And now the Chinese are there controlling the resources and until Africa is free, we will not be. And I know that's hard for people in various places, but you know, the largest um, congregation of us outside of Africa is in South America in Brazil, less Africans came to North America than Central and South America. And so we're not the only ones oppressed. We have been dispersed to over 113 different countries on the planet. And in each of those, we're calling ourselves, I'm Canadian, I'm Brazilian, I'm South American, I'm from Costa Rica, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, I'm from Natchez, Mississippi, I'm from New Orleans, divide and conquer. Africa is one, African people are one. And we've got to develop strategies in that regard that can unify 
the aspirations of the people. Again, I go back to J. Edgar Hoover and COINTELPRO, where he said we must prevent the rise of an African messiah that could unify the aspirations of African people, especially those nationalists. And that's why they set out and destroyed the movement, man, by incarceration, by uh, executions, assassinations. Young people, Fred Hampton, 21. Man, just so many, man, they tragically, people ask, well, why can't you all just get yourselves together? Because the most powerful government in human history designed and attacked African people by design and do so even up until this day. So I don't know what liberation um, looks like, but what we lack is organization. We have more organizations than any people on the planet. The truth is less than 1% of our people are actively involved in those organizations. And we need the people. We need the masses of humanity. There is no sitting on the sidelines. You know, we say, don't hate, participate. No participation, no right to speak, no right to crime on. We say, agitate. You know, your clothes won't get clean in the washing machine if that agitator isn't doing his thing. We say, advocate. Those of us who can must speak for those who either won't or can't speak for themselves. We say educate. Brother Malcolm said that education is the passport for our future. And real education comes from the community, not the capitalist school system, because they make us reactionary instead of revolutionary. We say legislate. Every decision that affects our lives is done through either a local, state, or federal legislative body. Again, no participation, no right to speak. Uh, Mark Warner, Tim Kaine, Bobby Scott, um, uh, Ralph Northam, uh, Justin Fairfax, Mark Herring, uh, LeVar Stoney, everybody on council, or if you live in the counties with Tyrone Nelson and all of those should know our numbers when they hit them on speed dial. And if we're not actively participating and advocating, then by that act of inactivity, we're against our people. And so we got to litigate. The courts have been um, stacked with uh, right wingers now, but Look, I'm going to find um, Judge Mathis, Judge Judy, or somebody that's going to hear our damn case. And finally, I say liberate. We must liberate like Queen Harriet Tubman, um, who gained her freedom. She could have chilled out in Philadelphia, but she recognized that individual freedom was nothing without the freedom of the masses of her people. So she came back. She came back. She came back, she came back over and over and over again. So we've got sterling examples. We don't have to write any more books. We got all of the great um, African liberators who fought and struggled. We need to follow their example. But again, I know it's hard for people who live in Canada or the US or you know Jamaica to think, well, Africa has to be free for us to be free. Africa has to be a base. 
So we have to take advantage of every aspect of um, liberation that we can that just recited and use them and continue to fight and each generation will get stronger and we're gonna be free because we're freedom loving people. We've gotta be free, we're gonna be free and we can't get disappointed. We can't get disappointed. One of the things is they infiltrate all of our organizations and they turn the organizations against themselves. And they have us attacking and fighting each other internally. And that's by design. So look, we already know we're infiltrated. So let's make the FBI and the agent provocateurs work for the liberation of our people too. Lastly, there's been uh, a lot of state repression happening nationwide with uh, anti-police, anti-racist demonstrators. Uh, just last Thursday, September 17th, there was a, a raid by the Richmond police um, in the home of a local activist. Uh, what are some traditional ways that those with power or the state uh, typically suppress, um, as you were talking about, social movements and even organizers themselves? Well, one of the things they do is keep us in court. Plus, you know, these folks have uh, mastered um, infiltration and then um, making FBI informants and agent provocateurs do certain acts. I was, uh, I had a crew that was attending um, marches, rallies, and other things. And we were really, because I'm an elder, and I'm not trying to get in the way of young people who are sparking this thing. I can offer my advice, but I can tell you, I'm not the same person I was in my 20s. And so as Ella Baker taught us, you don't try to tell the young people what to do. Even when young people make mistakes, you can correct the mistakes, just recognize the mistakes, and we meet and we've got to be strategic about it. So, you know, I'm observing and watching and listening, and you could tell who the agent provocateurs were. In fact, that one, um, when some folks started breaking some windows and setting some fires, well, it was, it was just so clear to me as an elder and then I saw where there was a split in the movement. One part of the march went um, to the state capitol and the others went on back down to police headquarters. And I was right there for part of the argument. And part of the argument was, well, you weren't here. You weren't here when we did this. We're first, we're that. Same mistakes that SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SCLC, NAACP, all of them did, we all made mistakes, but we're gonna correct those mistakes. We're gonna get sharper. And if I can offer any insights I have from the many L's I took, the beat downs and the sellouts, then I'm gonna share it with the next generation so they'll be even better. Plus I have some children that I've trained who are my son and daughter, and uh, they're gonna be way better than I ever was. They might not know it yet, but they're gonna they're gonna come into line. Just wait and see. So so we just have to continue to struggle. We have to continue to struggle. Can't get down, you know, whatever your spiritual practices are, get 
get spirited up and uh, recognize that we have come a long way, yet we still have a long way to go. We're gonna win. We're gonna win, because look, we shouldn't even be here. That's the resiliency of our people. And we gotta tell people, join an organization that's working for your liberation. You sitting on the sidelines, you've sold out, no participation, no right to speak. We have got to participate. It's just like, you know, how they're boosting us in the vote. How many people didn't vote? And we got um, Donald Trump. Man, Donald Trump didn't start this stuff. Yeah, he's a piece of excrement, but so were all the others that preceded him. And you know, you talk about Democrats and Republicans, it's a thin line between them. And, you know, we can recite what Democrats have done from the crime bill to AFRICOM in Africa, decimating Africa, and on and on. But uh, they say, look, you got to participate. Man, the people don't believe in this system. That's why they don't vote. They don't participate. When is the last time? In fact, in 18, uh, during Reconstruction, highest uh, voter registration we had was in the 90 percentile during Reconstruction, the Africans traveled miles and stood in line in Virginia. And I think we voted in the 88 percentile. And you know, they had major Africans in the Virginia General Assembly. We haven't reached that anytime since because they've been able to turn us off to that. So that's just one tool, but um, we're gonna win. We're gonna win, we must win future generations, because I'm telling you, I'm going to work until um, the casket drops. And I told everybody, I'm coming back after the casket drops. That's we're right. Gonna <laughs> we're going to win. Like, like Brother Marcus Garvey, look for me in the whirlwind, because we're going to win and we must win. All right, I have one closing question, uh, which is just, what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? Well, I don't consider myself privileged in this society, um, but I'm privileged in African society because I've been able to sit and work with the elders and the ancestors and at their feet. So I'm going to use everything I have to disrupt the capitalist, racist, white supremacist system until Africa is free and until African people are free and liberated all around the globe. So every privilege I have, I'm using it for our liberation. Where can people follow you if they want to keep up with your work or uh, any organizations you're a part of? Um, Facebook under King, K-I-N-G, Salim, S-A-L-I-M, Kalfani, K-H-A-L-F-A-N-I. Uh, we can be reached at Nexus Services Public Advocacy Department at 540-908-9634. And uh, that's about it. You can call me. You can, you know, get with me on Facebook. We return all calls.
the topic of this event is very timely and very appropriate, oppression and repression in the United States. The major problem we are confronting today, the major problem people throughout this country are confronting is the problem of racism. And I think that if the last four years are any indication of what is to come during the next four years, we can indeed predict a very catastrophic period within the history of this country. Black and brown and Asian and Native American people have always been the first victims of oppression and repression in this country. But I think that white people in this country, particularly white working people, should begin to understand that they too are exploited and they too can be victims of repression. On many occasions in the past, and especially during the, this recent period after the elections, I have used the word fascism. I have talked about an increasingly fascist danger which people in this country must begin to come to grips with. Some people have accused me of using rhetoric which doesn't have any basis in reality. But I think that we have to be very serious during these very critical moments. We have to understand that there is indeed a very real danger, menace of fascism in the United States today. I do not think that we have already entered into a period of full-blown fascism because fascism is not something that suddenly explodes and erupts into being. If we look back into the history of the world, if we look at countries like Germany, Spain, Italy, we see that fascism is a process. It's something that grows and develops. It's like a cancer. It starts attacking one group of people, but like a cancer, it begins to spread out with a fatal rapidity, and eventually, like a cancer, it destroys everything around it. Once fascism does consolidate itself, and I think again we have to look towards the past, look at those countries where fascism did develop into its full-blown state. Once this happens, there is no possibility of resisting it and defeating it from within. Look at what happened to Germany. Look at Italy. It was always defeated from without. 
And I would ask you to tell me one thing, if you can conceive of such a fascist order developing in this country, who would liberate us? Who would be able to liberate a country whose government possesses enough weaponry and enough nuclear capability to destroy every single person in the world many times over? And I know many of you probably do not agree with me that we are embarking upon a period which could lead in the direction of fascism. But I would urge upon you to weigh what I'm going to say very seriously, because your fate may very well, well depend upon it. If we look two fascist countries in the past, one of the things that becomes very clear is that the government or the class in power has always sought ways and means to divide the people. And when you talk about divide and rule, divide and conquer, that's one of the age-old strategic things, themes of oppressors and exploiters. And it's within this context that I want to say a few words about racism. Racism as it affects, in the first place, black people, Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, Native American, Asians. And racism as it also affects those white people who become its unwilling, unwitting pawns, its unwitting weapons, its unwitting instruments. Because I maintain that racism does not benefit the masses of white people and that white people have just as much an interest in fighting racism as black people and Chicanos and Puerto Ricans and Native Americans and Asians. And First of all, let's ask ourselves, who does racism aid? And I don't think there's any doubt about the fact that the beneficiaries of racism are not the masses of white people, but the vast capitalist corporations in this country. And you see, when I talk about capitalists, I'm not talking about the small businessman, the person who has a corner drugstore or corner grocery store. See, that's what Richard Nixon wants us to think black capitalism is all about. But you see, capitalism today, when we talk about capitalism today, we have to look towards the General Motors, the Standard Oils, the IT&Ts, the General Electrics, the Bank of Americas, and I could go on and on. But actually, I couldn't go that far. Because the number of people in this country who control the majority of the wealth is extremely minute. If you take the hundred largest corporations in this country, they already control 50% of the wealth. And then you take the 200 largest, and you find out that they control practically uh, 
all except 15% of the wealth in this country. But then 70% of all income taxes are paid by working people. Does that sound right? Sounds like there's something wrong with that. But let me try to explain for a moment how racism affects people of color and black people, Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, and all people of color in this country. If you take working people of color, and if you compare the wages which we receive to the wages which white workers doing the very same jobs, and I'm using government statistics, statistics that the government has given us, you find that there is a $28 million differential. That is to say, black people, black people alone account for a $21 billion super profits. But then if you add Chicanos and, and, and Native Americans and Puerto Ricans and all other people of color in this country, you end up with $28 million in extra profits that the capitalists put in their pockets just because of the existence of racism. Just because of the existence of racism. And that's a lot of money because we could buy a lot of houses and build a lot of schools and a lot of childcare centers and a lot of the things that we need in the ghetto and the barrio with that $28 million. How many brothers do I know on Rockers Island? did a raid in my neighborhood guess they running out of field labor shaney from 6a mikey from 6b cells right next to each other so they still neighbors if you're selling lucy's or you're smoking they send you off to college they got everything you need three square meals and a place to bathe numbers on the rise and entire race of slaves cops like recruiters trying to increase enrollment forget about that wife that you should be getting low with forget about them kids that you should be here to raise Legal aid told you that you could be here for days. Didn't want to tell you that you're probably here for years. Look at all the numbers, you're surrounded by your peers. Dudes from your neighborhood, some you went to school with. Cash you had beef with, others you was cool with. There's so many of us, I mean plenty of us. Cops rolled up, back like 20 of us. Laws and a probable cause. Search and seizure, leave you out of your drawers, yeah. Spread your cheeks, bend over cough. Say what? Another false arrest with no remorse. And tomorrow is the same again. Hard to keep track of all the brothers going in. Count them. One, two, 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 Four, five, count them up, son. One, two, 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 Four, five, count them up, son. Bodies on the rise and going up, son. Rise for all the lies, getting stuck, son. You're listening to WRIR 97.3 LP Richmond Independent Radio with me, Naomi Isaac, and this is Race Capital.